0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Feet, how many people in here are big fans of human feet? Anybody? I mean, some I'm sure there's two or three weirdos that go, oh, I love it, <laughs> you know, I and mean, you're weird, okay? I'll just tell you that. If you love feet and you're not a podiatrist, you're weird, okay? Most of us, if we, were, if we were saying what's the least part of our body that we like the least, it's probably our feet, right? Because they're just gross. You know, after running three marathons, a half marathon, a bunch of 10Ks, I have... The weirdest collection of toenails you have ever seen, okay? I mean, I'm embarrassed when I have to go without shoes on because my feet are just gross. And I think that most people would say that feet, not just their feet, but feet in general, is pretty much just downright disgusting, right? Most of us would agree that. Here's the deal. Since Bible times, the Middle East, since Bible times all the way up to today feet have been disgusting, and they kind of personify it there. Now, you may not have seen this, but back on December the 14th of 2008, this happened. During a press conference at the prime minister's palace in Baghdad, Iraq, an Iraqi journalist threw both of his shoes at then-President George W. Bush. The reporter did this because this is a huge insult in that culture, and that's why he did it. And you know, nimble George He was able to bob and weave and duck And miss them all And he got tackled, the guy did And press secretary Dana Perino Caught a mic in the eye And she, was, she actually ended up with a big shiner Kind of unfortunate for her but, but Bush was fine In 2003 The Iraqi hotel Al-Sharid Had a unique feature put in And that was It had this mosaic on the floor of the main entrance of George Herbert Walker Bush's face. Saddam Hussein had had it installed, I saw, earlier than 2003. He had it installed following the Gulf War in Kuwait. He personally picked the Al-Sharid Hotel because he wanted to in, insult then-President uh, Bush. The thought in his mind of thousands of Iraqi feet walking over the face of the former president was very appealing to Saddam because he did not fare well. He was thoroughly embarrassed in 1991's Gulf War. It was in 2003 that U.S. Marines went in and they actually jackhammered up the mosaic. Taking a shoe to the face in the Arab world is a serious insult. Even simply pointing the soles of your feet at someone is considered a grave insult. In the Arab world, to hit someone personally or a picture of that person with your shoe is to show the deepest possible form of contempt for that person. Do you know why? Because shoes are an extension of your feet, and feet are gross. Let's just be honest. Your feet smell like nothing else, right? Some of you, it's bad. And we're just here to tell you, okay? Quit wearing shoes without socks. Because something is percolating down there. It's your feet. It's your feet. Now, the reason we're talking about the disgusting nature of feet this morning is because our text that we're going to be studying it's talking about feet. So if you have your Bible or your smartphone or tablet, you want to turn to John 13. It's here, we're going to see Jesus do something that no upstanding rabbi would ever be caught dead doing. And it involves feet. John 13, verses 1 through 5 says this. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus did what no right-minded Jewish rabbi would have done. He washed his disciples' feet. That was unheard of. But he did it specifically to set a standard, not just for the 12, but for all of us. And this is the standard Serve one another. Serve one another. In this text, we're going to find Jesus emphasizing three key ideals for his disciples to model when serving. And the first one is humility. Jesus demonstrates how to bless others through service. And it starts with humility. John says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. More than any of the other Gospels, John emphasizes the fact that Jesus is operating on a heavenly timetable. As he's doing the Lord's will, he is functioning off of God's timeline. So we read in verse 1 that Jesus knew that the hour had come. Now what was this divinely pointed hour that he's talking about? It was the time when he would be glorified through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. From a human viewpoint or standpoint, we see, this, we see this being all about suffering. But from a divine standpoint, Jesus saw this about being glorified. Jesus would soon leave this world and return to his father who sent him, having finished the work that his father sent him on earth to do. And the Jews and the Romans couldn't even arrest him. They couldn't do anything, let alone kill him. Until the right hour had arrived, and John tells us right out of the gate, "Now is the hour; the time has come." Jesus also knew something else. He knew that one of the twelve, Judas, would betray him. Judas is mentioned eight times in the Gospel of John, more than any of the other gospels, any of the other gospel narratives. Luke, though, tells us in Luke, the 22nd chapter, that Satan had entered into Judas, and now he would give him the thoughts necessary to bring about the arrest and crucifixion of the Son of God. In verse 2, we read, and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. That word prompted, it literally means to throw. Now, how does that make any sense? Well, it reminded me of the fi- flaming arrows that the evil one will fire at the believer or the unbeliever. You remember that? Paul talks about in Ephesians the 6th chapter when he's talking about the full armor of God. We read about this fact that Judas is not a believer. We read about that back in John the 6th chapter. John John tells us he's not. He's not a follower. So he wouldn't have had access to the shield of faith that Paul talks about that is used to extinguish those fiery darts or those flaming arrows that Satan fires at us. Every good disciple needed that shield of faith to defend himself, which is a great reminder for us. We're in a spiritual battle. We really are. And the enemy is going to fire darts at you. And you need to be suited up in the armor of God, holding the shield of faith. That your faith in God's promises will sustain you when the enemy attacks you. There's also something else in this part of the text that I think is really important for us to gather. And that is that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things to him. Verse 3, let me read it again to you. He said, Jesus knew that the Father... Had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John reminds us that all of the events that are happening, that are right now all the way through till the ascension, all of these are under Jesus' authority. All of this happened. Because he allows it to happen. Not just because it was his hour. It was his hour and all of a sudden the plans of God are now beginning to spin into motion. But they happen because Jesus allowed them to happen. It may look like it was happening to him, but it's only because he allows it to. So with that as kind of some parameters for us. Then we see something that is remarkable. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. It's so remarkable. It's in verses 4 and 5 that we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It says the disciples must have been shocked to see their teacher, their master, get up from the supper table and take his outer garments off and put a towel around his waist like a common slave and then begin pouring water in a basin and washing the filthy, gross feet of his disciples because feet are gross. I have a friend who he's kind of a little bit uh, of a phobia about feet. If you, if you touch him on the leg with your bare foot, he totally freaks out. Why? Because feet are gross. That's the only reason. And yet, Jesus starts washing feet. Two weeks ago, when we studied John, the 12th chapter, remember it was when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with this expensive ointment called nard. Do you remember that? We talked about how that culture with regard to rabbis and their disciples kind of functioned. They typically acted not just as servants, the disciples, but not just as students, but as servants as well. Yet they were never required to wash the rabbi's feet. That was off limits. No rabbi could require that. The task was actually reserved for slaves. And this is interesting. I did not know this until I did this study today. But even some slaves were spared this task. If you had a slave, you were Jewish, and you had a Jewish slave, you could not require them to wash your feet. You know why? Why? Because feet are gross. Come on, people. When are you going to get that? (laughs) Feet are gross. You cannot make a countryman do it. You could require a Gentile slave to do it, but you couldn't require a Jewish slave to do such a menial task. And here's the thing. The fact that Jesus himself took on this task makes it extremely significant, not just for the 12, but I think for us as well. Jesus knew... Something else was going on here. In addition to all that's happening, the hour's now, it's all under his authority. He's washing their feet. But he also knows that there is a competitive spirit at work in the hearts of his disciples. In fact, in Luke's gospel account, we read that within a few minutes, the men were in the upper room. They were disputing over which of them was the greatest. And then Jesus gave them this unforgettable lesson of humility. And by his actions, he didn't say it, just his actions rebuked their selfishness and their pride. That happened before he even explained any of it. The more you think about this scene, this is for me, maybe it's true for you, but the more we think about it, the more profound it becomes. Think about this. Jesus is the sovereign He's the ruler. He's the supreme authority over the entire universe. And yet he took the place of a slave. He had all these things under his power, and yet he picks up this towel and this basin. He was the Lord. He was the teacher. He was the master of all, not just the 12, but of all. And yet he served his followers. It's often been said that humility is not thinking badly about yourself. It's simply not thinking of yourself at all. And I think that's probably a good definition. But where does this come from? True humility. True humility grows out of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. You're not going to find it growing anywhere else. If our desire is to know and do the Father's will so we might glorify His name, then we'll experience the joy of following Christ's example and serving others in the process. And just like the disciples on that night, we desperately need this lesson in humility, I think, in the church. Now, you will not hear me dog the church, and I'm not doing that right now. I, I, I just believe in the local church is the hope. It's the place where people are going to find Jesus, and it's the hope of the world. Because that's where Jesus is, who is the hope of the world, But the church seems to be filled at this time in in our culture with this worldly spirit of competition and criticism as believers seem to compete with one another as to who's the greatest or which church is the greatest. It's not a competition. We're all franchises of the same, same company. We should be working together. We may be growing in knowledge, but for some reason we're slow to grow in this grace of humility. Humility, Andrew Murray says, is the only soil in which graces root. The lack of humility is sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. If we don't have humility, if Andrew Murray is right, I think he is. If we don't have humility, we're doomed in our spiritual pursuits. In the upper room, Jesus ministered in love to his disciples, and they received him and what he had to say. I love what the Greek text says here, literally. If you translate it literally, Jesus says he loved them to the uttermost. That's deep. And he still loves his followers that way today. Some of you will check up at some point, and you will wonder, does God really love me? And the truth is, he loves you to the uttermost. Never, ever forget that. Well, we go on in the text, starting with verse 6. Let me take a shot of water here real quick. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, we love Simon Peter. I mean, really, he is a great actor in these stories. He said to him, Lord... Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. The second ideal that Jesus emphasized in this text for his disciples when they're serving is the ideal of holiness. And Peter helps all of us learn a key lesson here. He really does again, we should say. As Peter watched the Lord wash the uh, feet of his friends, he became more and more disturbed. We might say incensed. And he couldn't understand what Jesus was doing and why he was doing that. And as you read about the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you will notice that Peter is that one guy who often spoke out impulsively. He speaks oftentimes out of his own ignorance and then he has to be corrected by Jesus. And Jesus often does that lovingly. Well, this situation is just another occasion of Peter's impulsiveness. There's an interesting word that, that Jesus uses. John translates the word wash. It's used five times in this portion of the text. It's the Greek word nipto, nipto, nipto. And it means to wash a part of the body. And that, that, the emphasis here is washing the feet. Because why? Because feet are what? They're gross. You guys are brilliant. Way smarter than that first service, I can tell you. I don't think they still get it. Then, Paul, then uh, Jesus uses another word. And that is the word for washed in verse 10. It's the word logo. And that word means to bathe all over. And the distinction here is really important. Jesus is making the distinction between washing one part of the body as opposed to washing the entire part of the body. For he's trying to teach his, his disciples the importance of a holy life. See, when a sinner trusts the Savior, he is bathed all over. He is logo And his sins are washed away and they're forgiven. Hebrews 10 17 says, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. However, as the believer walks in this world, it's easy to sin. It's easy to become defiled by that sin. He doesn't need to be bathed all over again, he simply needs to have that defilement washed away. John writes in 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God promises to cleanse us when we confess our sins to him. Well, why is any of this important? Why is it so important that we keep our feet clean? And when we, when we, when we sin, that we double back and repent and confess that sin. Why is that important? Because if we are defiled, if we're sinful, and we continue that behavior, that process, we can't have communion with the Lord. What do you mean? Look what he said to Peter. He said, unless I wash you, unless I niptoe you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash your feet. Now he's talking about his feet, but he's talking spiritually here as well. The word translated, you have no part with me. That word part is meros in Greek. And it means to have participation with or having a share in a person or in something. You see, when God bathes us in salvation, he brings about a union between us and Jesus. However, our communion with Christ depends on us keeping ourselves As James puts it, from being polluted by the world. He's talking about defilement from sin. If we permit unconfessed sin in our lives, we hinder our walk with the Lord, and that is when we need to have our feet washed. This basic truth of Christian living. It was illustrated in the Old Testament a long, long time ago. We look at the installation of a priest to become part of the priesthood of the people of Israel. We read in Exodus that when a priest was consecrated, he was bathed all over. And that experience was never repeated after that. That was part of his initial consecration. He was bathed all over. However, During his daily ministry, it wasn't uncommon for him to become defiled in some way. So it was necessary that he would have his hands and his feet washed at the brass laver there in the courtyard of the temple. Only then could he go into the holy place to trim the lamps and eat the holy bread and burn the incense. It's a great picture for us. But Peter didn't understand what the Lord was doing. He didn't understand what he was saying. And instead of waiting for an explanation, which Jesus would eventually give, he impulsively tried to tell the Lord what to do. And Peter is so emphatic here that he uses this strong double negative in John 13, 8. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. The Greek scholar Kenneth Woost translated Peter's statement this way. He said, you shall by no means wash wash my feet. No, never. Peter's pretty serious in this moment. I mean, he's not putting on a show for the other guys. He's dead serious. And then we discover what he discovered, that to refuse the Lord would mean to lose fellowship with the Lord. Peter went in the opposite direction, and he asked for a total bath from Jesus. We can learn a couple important lessons from Peter. The first is this, don't question the Lord's will or his work. And the second is, don't try to change it. And that second, that second question is really important for us here. Don't try to change what God is doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. Peter had a difficult time accepting Jesus' ministry to him because Peter was not ready to minister to the other disciples. It takes humility and grace To serve others. But it also takes humility and grace to allow others to serve us. There's one other important point in this part of the text. John makes this comparison between Peter and Judas. He points out that Peter and Judas were in a different relationship with Jesus. Each other's relationship was very different. Jesus did wash Judas' feet, but it did Judas no good because he'd never been washed all over. He'd never been Lago, so Nipto would not mean anything. All right, the last part of the text says When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. If you do them. So, the third ideal that Jesus emphasizes for his disciples when serving is the ideal of happiness. It starts by living out the example of Jesus. Verse 17 may be the key verse in this entire text. If it's not the most important, it's definitely one of the most. Jesus said, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you, what? If you do them. The sequence is really important in this, though. Humbleness, holiness, then leads to happiness. Happiness is the byproduct of a life that is lived in the will of God. Outside of that, you're, you're going to struggle to find happiness. When we humbly serve others, when we walk in God's path of holiness and we do what he tells us, then we will enjoy happiness. Jesus asked the disciples if they understood what he had done after he washed their feet, their gross, filthy feet. And it's not likely that any of them did. They didn't understand it. So he explained it to them. He said he had given them a lesson in humble service and an example for them to follow. You see, the world thinks that happiness is found in the result of others serving us, but real joy comes when we serve others in the name of Christ. It's interesting. uh, In 1999, a book came out uh, by a couple of guys, or three guys, one, Ken Blanchard, who was well-known among uh, business owners. People had... Probably, if you were in business at that time, you probably had a copy of The One Minute Manager, which was an international bestseller. Anything Blanchard wrote seemed to go right to the, you know, top of the New York Times bestseller list, especially in the, in the area of business books. And he comes together with Bill Hybels and Phil Hodges, and they write this book called Leadership by the Book. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. It follows the fictitious journey of this boss... Who discovers that serving his employees is not only good for business, but it's more personally fulfilling to him than having them serve him. And I laughed every step, every time I, I read another page. I was laughing the entire time I read this book because this principle has been around for 2,000 years. Jesus exemplified it here in John 13, serve the, serve the team. And, and, you know, America went crazy over this book because they said, this is a radical idea. This is really going to change business like forever. And Jesus has been saying, I know. I know. I've been trying to get you to look at it this way for a long time. I thought it was interesting that a business book would promote this key quality out of Scripture that the boss serving the employee and the benefits that would come from it would be revolutionary. And it was. And it still is. That's the way Jesus modeled it. And he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. The world is constantly pursuing happiness, but that's like chasing a shadow. It's always just a little bit out of our reach. Jesus was the teacher. He was the Lord. He was, he was the rabbi of these guys. So he had every right to command their service, but instead, instead he served them. He gave them This bonafide example of true Christian ministry. On more than one occasion, during the previous three, three and a half years, he had taught them lessons about humility and about service. And now he's demonstrating it for them. Guys, look at this object lesson. And it involved their dirty, filthy, gross feet. And I think it's all starting to fall into place for them. You see, the servant's not greater than the master. So if the master becomes a servant, where does that put the servant? On the same level as the master. By becoming a servant, our Lord did not push us down further. He lifted us up. He dignified sacrifice and service. Those are character qualities that are highly valued in the paradigm of Jesus the world asks the question, how many people work for you? And that's a status symbol. But the Lord asks a different question. How many people are you working for? We need leaders who will serve and servants who will lead. J.K. Chesterton said that a really great man is one who makes others feel great. And Jesus did just that with his disciples that day by teaching them how to serve. Here's the vital point. though: All this is a moot, it's, it's a moot point. If you miss this one part, it's not enough just to know this truth. We must put it into practice. Remember I said verse 17 is really important? Studying this section of John's gospel can stir us emotionally or can enlighten us even intellectually, but it cannot bless us spiritually until we do what Jesus told us to do. This is the only way to have lasting happiness in your life. The challenge is simply this. Serve somebody every day of your life. No matter where you are in the family order, pecking order, where you are in the business order, where you are in the church order, wherever you are, serve somebody every single day of your life. That's that's the model that Jesus said. That's the standard He said. Serve one another. And if He would do that, the King of Kings... And Lord of Lords, then you and I, I mean, are compromising our status to do that's nothing compared to what he did. So there's a challenge. I want you to part, make this part of who you are, that every day you look for somebody you can serve. It doesn't have to be broadcast. Nobody needs to know it. You don't have to send me an email, here are the seven people I served last week. I don't even care. I mean, I care, but you know what I mean. I got enough email. But I want to trust you that if we're going to walk as Jesus did and those who claim to live in him must walk as he did then let's serve people. Let that be part of the DNA of this place. I want to close by talking about one person. Now I could talk about our entire staff uh, because we got a lot of servants around here and there are a lot of lay people who would fit that category as well. But I want to talk about one of the people who lives this way, and he's one of our co-workers. He's always offered to help me out, always. Almost to the point that he's a little annoying about it. It's just always, hey, anything I can do for you. If I need a ride, he's always willing. If I ever need anything fixed, he will fix it. And when I break it again, he fixes it again. And he smiles. It's so funny, because I will break it again. If I need someone to make a hospital visit in a, in a pinch or talk to a homeless person who's made their way into our lobby, whatever it is, he's always willing to serve. In fact, we've had to send him home on a few occasions because he was sick, but he didn't think we could do it without him here. So we had to convince him we can manage, just don't die, go home, but don't die. Five years ago, when I moved into my new office, I showed up here on an off day to move all my books and my personal things, and I came in only to find that somebody had already moved everything, everything, pictures on the wall, all my stuff on my desk, transferred over. It was awesome. And it was this guy. None of you are surprised by that, are you? No. When I think about people who are great foot washers, I think about Reggie Smith. We should all be servants like that. I know he's in here. I want to make him stand up because I want you all to value this guy. We should all be servants like that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for people like Reggie who... uh, who embody what it means to pick up a towel basin and wash people's filthy, gross, awful, terrible feet. I can't imagine anything worse than washing those disciples' feet, and yet I'm sure there are things far worse than that. But I thank you, God, that you said, hey, I'm not above that, and you did it, and therefore we can live that way. We should live that way. Help us to be people who serve. Let that be a part of the character of our church, that we care about people, that we serve them, even when we don't get any credit for it. God, help us to be people of sacrifice and service. Lord, thank you for the example that you set for us. I pray, God, that we would be those people. In Jesus' name, amen you've never taken that step to make Jesus the Lord of your life, there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of things today so that you could be in here and to hear about the love that God has for you, to the uttermost, His love. If you've never accepted that love, I, I hope that you would meet me down front when we worship, because I'd love to tell you about it. Don't let one more day go by without that. If you have a need for prayer or anything like that, we're going to have a number of folks down front. We'd love to meet you. Would you come as we stand together and worship?